The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I've entitled the message today, No Eternal Punishment. Uh, hopefully you understand that title as we you know, get into the message and understand it. But let me start off by asking you this morning, how many of you have ever struggled with the Christian life? Okay, if your hand isn't up, it's either because you're not a Christian or you are a liar. Okay? <laughs> because we all struggle. Okay? We all have feelings of inadequacy. We all at times beat ourselves up. You know, we're saying, you know, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why didn't I do this? Have you ever asked yourself, how can I be a Christian and have these thoughts or do these things? <laughs> have you ever dealt with this? <laughs> What I want us to see from Scripture today is that although we struggle in our daily lives, our eternal position as believers is secure in Christ. That's the anchor. That's what holds us. You know, we mess up often, but we are not condemned because of the grace of Christ. The Scriptures teach that the believer stands complete in Christ by faith. As a Christian, we share all that Christ is and all that He has. When He died, we died. When He rose, we rose. The principle of identification with Christ is the basic foundation of the spiritual life. And if you understand this, this will ground you. This will anchor you. Understanding our position is key, I think, to living victoriously. It's hard to live a victorious life when we're always getting beat up by ourselves because we don't think we're measuring up. Yahweh teaches us positional truth because He expects us to see who we are in Christ through the eyes of faith. Now, this has nothing to do with our feelings. We can't taste we can't feel and we can't smell positional truth. Our position in Christ is infallible, it's unalterable, it's eternal, and it's exalted. God said it, and by faith we believe it. So what is our position? Well, we could go to a lot of different texts to demonstrate that this morning, but I want us to look at one of my favorite scriptures. It's in Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4, through 4, particularly verse 1 here. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Yeshua. Already starts out, therefore. This always links us to what's already gone before. You know, you've heard people say, if you see therefore, you have to look and see what it's there for. Okay? It's connecting you to something. What are you saying now is something that is related to something that he said previously. How far back do we go? Well, some say this goes back to 7-6, and that would fit where he says, but now we have been released from the law. And in other words, this is why we're not condemned. We're free from the law. Having died to that, which we're bound. We died in Christ, so we're free from the law. So that we serve in newness of spirit, not in oldness of the letter. And that's possible. It does fit. But I think we have to go back further. I think we need to go back to the Adam-Christ contrast that we see in chapter 5, verses 12-21. Because the condemnation that was imposed there is done away here. And we'll look at that in more detail in a moment. Many see, see chapter 6 through 8 dealing with the subject of sanctification in the sense of personal holiness. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I, I see the context that goes from 520 through 811 dealing with particularly Jewish believers' relationship to the law of Moses. In 6.1, Paul's objector is asking, shall we stay under the law so that sin will increase? That's his question. 
Paul says, Megenetah, no, let it never be. Romans 7 shows us Israel's failure to obey the law. You know, they couldn't keep it at all. They desired to keep it, but they continually failed. One thing that really stands out when you get to chapter 8 is the number of times that the Spirit is mentioned. See, the term Spirit is mentioned only five times in the preceding seven chapters in Romans. It's only mentioned once in chapter 7. But when you turn to chapter 8, we have the Holy Spirit mentioned about 21 times. That chapter contains the greatest concentration on references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Average of one almost every two verses. So he starts out, he says, Therefore, you know, he's finishing in chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall set me free? You know, from and then he says, Therefore, Therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Yeshua. Now, reading this in the original text, the emphasis rests upon the word no. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. That's the emphatic word in the Greek text. The Greek word that Paul uses here for condemnation is katakrama. Okay, I want you to learn that. I want you to understand. I want you to say that word. Katakrama. That's, we're going to, you got to understand what this word means. Katakrama is the normal word for condemnation. It's only used three times in the Scripture, here and twice in in chapter 5 by Paul. So let's go back to 5 and see how he uses it the first time, because this is where it starts in Romans 5. He says, The gift, the gift of eternal life, is not like that which came through the one who sinned. That's a reference to Adam, all right? For on the one hand, the judgment arose... Now, because of Adam's sin, he was judged. Judgment here is the Greek word krima. Krima is a sentence, a decision on the part of a judge. God the judge gave this judgment, this sentence, and the sentence was condemnation. Judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in katakrima, condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. All right. Katakrama, condemnation, is the punishment following the sentence of the judgment, the krima. Now, it is in a passive formation in the Greek, and it's not likely to refer to the sentence as the edict from the judge, but rather to the punishment itself. What is the punishment? What is the condemnation? This is spiritual death. Alright, that's what resulted. That's what the judgment was. He died spiritually. The punishment was separation from God. So we could say this. The punishment, the katakrama, is eternal punishment. That's what he received. Eternal punishment. But on the other hand, the free gift from Christ arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So Adam's sin is imputed to all And all are therefore born spiritually dead. We're all born under katakrama. We're born under that condemnation. We see this word again in in verse 18. Again, this is punishment following the sentence. That's what it is. That's what katakrama is. It's the punishment that follows, which is spiritual death, eternal punishment, separation from God, however you want to say it. All right? Again, this word's seen in verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin, there resulted katakrama, condemnation to all men. Okay, everybody came under that condemnation. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, that's Christ's act, there resulted justification of life to all men. Again, in this verse we see the same idea. Adam's transgression... Results in condemnation, katakrama, spiritual death, eternal punishment. When Adam sinned, he sinned as our federal representative. Okay? Adam's sin is imputed to the account of every individual in Adam's race. Everyone born is born spiritually dead, separated from God because of Adam's sin. You see a little baby, you say, he looks so sweet and so innocent. He's under condemnation. Adam's act was a representative act. And you and I, as being represented as our, by our federal head, 
We participated in Adam's sin. You sinned in Adam. Now, people don't like it. They say, well, I don't like that. I, if I, God would have chose me, I would have represented us better. Really? You think so? Well, you know, Adam did fail. So God said, well, let me try again. Let's try with Israel. Let's try with the whole nation. How well did they do? Man. Okay. So Romans 5, 12 through 21 is a comparison of two men. Adam and Christ. And the comparison is very simple. There are two men who each performed a single act that brought forth a single result. And the result is experienced by every member of their respective races. In Adam, there was nothing but death and hopelessness. But in Christ, there is life. For He brought His people out from under the rule and authority of sin and death. Now, there will never be, in the life of any believer, spiritual death. Now, so that does away with this idea. People say, well, couldn't you lose your salvation? Then you could have spiritual death. But you can't have spiritual death if you're a Christian. Now listen, there will be chastening from the Father. There will be discipline in this life. But there will never be condemnation. Katakrama. There will never be spiritual death. There will never be separation from God. There will never be eternal punishment. There is no condemnation. Now, no condemnation to who? There's a... There's parameters to that claim. The promise is only for who? Those who are in Christ Yeshua. Alright? Those are in Christ. Some are in Him by faith. Some are not. Paul assumes this everywhere in his writings. There are those in Christ. There are those outside. Paul is not a universalist. Okay? He says explicitly in Romans 9.3 with, 9, with grief that there are those who are accursed Separated from Christ. And we see in Matthew 25 that there's sheep and there's goats. Okay? 25, 33, and 34. He will put the sheep on the right and he'll put the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, that's the sheep, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the sheep enter the kingdom, they get eternal life, the goats get what? They're, these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. See, the Bible doesn't teach universalism. Yeshua doesn't love and He didn't die for everyone. When a man or woman believes in the Lord Yeshua, they are placed in Christ. That's their position. And being in Him, they are now free from eternal judgment because the penalty was paid in a substitute. This is so important that we get this. Okay? The Lord Yeshua came and He bore our punishment. And because our penalty has been paid, it's impossible to have that penalty laid on us. It's not like God said, they look like a nice person. I'm going to just forget about their sin and just let them in. You know, I can overlook that. He's not like some parents, okay? No, he, didn't, he doesn't overlook sin because he's a just, righteous God. Your sin, my sin, had to be punished. And so Christ came and bore our punishment. If you're in Christ, what happened to him happened to you. Union with Adam, the first man, led to our condemnation and our death. And union with Yeshua by faith, who is the second Adam, secured our righteousness and our life. And this idea of our union with Him who is our representative is really at the heart of Pauline theology. And if you get this idea, if you understand who you are, it'll make a huge difference, I believe, in how you live. Because I think it's hard to live the Christian life when you're really not sure God loves you. You're struggling to do it, but you think, ah, I'm probably not a Christian anyway. But if you know whose child you are, if you know you belong to God, that gives you the motivation to live a righteous, holy life. Now, I love this verse, but i got to tell you, there's a textual problem here. Okay? Depending on what translation you use, you might get some different ideas on who it is that doesn't have any condemnation. So far, that sounds good, right? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Period. But, 
If we look at the King James Version, everything in yellow is added by the King James. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the King James, the New King James, the EMTV, and Young's Living has the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you have the NIV, the ESV, the Complete Jewish Bible, the NASB, they don't have it. So the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, is in some translations, and it's missing in others. How do you deal with that? Pick a Bible you like, right? (laughs) I don't like this. Let me get a different translation. If the phrase is in the text, we have to ask, is our not being condemned a result of our walk? See, all of a sudden, that's really not a comforting verse. I mean, it's comforting in a New American, but it's not too comforting in King James. So which of these translations is right? How do we decide? We just pick one? The one that fits our theology best? No, we got to do some research and figure out what's really going on here, all right? The modern translations are based on editions of the Greek text that go back to the theories of Westcott and Hort, all right? Which wound up producing a text that that's more like the manuscripts that we've recovered from ancient Egypt than like it is the majority of the surviving manuscripts, many of which are much later. And discussions, even in Hort's day and since, have been over whether the Egyptian manuscripts represent a closer approximation to the original text, or whether the majority of manuscripts do that. Now, the majority of texts have this phrase, who do not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So a large majority of the manuscripts contain these words. So they have the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But, I think the Scripture clearly teaches that our justification is unconditional. It's not based on our walk. So how do we deal with this? I'm sure that you would admit that if not being condemned is based on your walk, you might feel a little bit uneasy about that, okay? And see, so many Christians do this. Their position with God is based on how they feel they're performing. You know, and you get to the end of the day and you figure, oh man, I didn't do so well today. You know, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe God doesn't love me. And you just struggle with that stuff. You know, so you've got to understand what your position is. And the problem here lies in understanding the phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but the Spirit. See, most Christians would define walking after the flesh as doing sinful things. Right? You agree with that? You're walking after the flesh. You're in the flesh. You know, you hear that. You know, they're fleshly. That means they're doing bad things. I think that if we understand how Paul uses the word, because here's what's important, people. Okay? we got to understand what Paul means by this, not what we mean by this. What we mean by walking according to the flesh doesn't mean anything. Because Paul wrote this, and Paul had a certain idea in his mind when he wrote it. And we have to understand, we got to get inside Paul's head and figure out what did Paul mean so we understand what this means. Alright? I think we can clear this up by looking at what Paul said in Romans 8.8. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, is Paul talking here about Christians that are doing sinful things, or are you talking about unbelievers? That could kind of go either way there, right? If you're in the flesh, you can't please God. So if you're doing simple things, you're not pleasing to God. If you're an unbeliever, you're not pleasing God. Okay, we could probably go either way there, right? But there's a vast difference. So let's look at how Paul uses the phrase in other places and see if we can try to understand exactly how he's using that phrase. Let's, For example, let's go to Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, verses 20 through 21, Paul speaks of the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. He says, But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. Okay, so Ishmael had fleshly parents, right? Hagar and Abraham. Did Isaac have fleshly parents? Yeah, Sarah and Abraham. They they were just as fleshly as Hagar and Abraham. So it's clear that Paul uses flesh here in the sense other than biological. They both had biological, physical parents. They had a physical birth. So what does he mean that Ishmael was born after the flesh? Well, let's look at verse 29. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So when these two verses are viewed together here, 
you see that Paul's saying that Isaac was born by promise, which was according to the Spirit. Ishmael was not born by promise of the Holy Spirit. Ishmael was born only after the flesh. So the word flesh can't mean simply a biological process, and it can't mean evil acts. We can see that Paul, what Paul means here, when we go a little further into this, verse 24, this is allegorically speaking, these women are two covenants. Now this is the key here to understanding this. Here Paul reveals that these two women, two physical, fleshly women, in the Genesis account, they actually are allegorically representing two covenants, the old and the new. So Hagar and Sarah represent old covenant, new covenant. So being born after the flesh or after the spirit doesn't refer to the difference in the physicalness of their births. It doesn't refer to doing sinful things per se. It refers to two opposing covenants. Paul's purpose in the allegory of the two covenants was to show that God's promise to Israel through Christ couldn't be received into the old covenant age. It couldn't be received by man's effort. Jews under the law were children of the flesh. They were of the bondwoman, old covenant, typified by Hagar. The old covenant could not give freedom, we'll see in a minute, by weakness of the flesh. So in Paul's view, flesh and spirit fall into redemptive historical categories. He's talking about two different covenants and two different means. The flesh here represents man's efforts, where the spirit represents trust in Christ. Alright? Two covenant ages. Seeking to live by the law boils down to seeking to live independently of God, doing it on your own, living by your own works, pleasing God by the things that you do, which is the basic sin of Adam. Now, to walk after the flesh is to seek life in terms of what you can accomplish yourself. And this is basically what religion is. Religion is people trying to please God by the things they do. I'll do this and God will be happy. I'll do that, God will be happy with me. Now listen, as Christians, we are to live to please God. But I'm talking about unsaved man trying to become right with God by the things he does. Basically, earning his position before God. That's the flesh seeking to please God. And men do it. That's really, that's what religion's about. Doing things. Okay? I, <laughs> this week I'm at the gym and I know a preacher there and he comes over to me and he shakes my hand. And he says, happy Ash Wednesday. And I'm like, okay. And he's got, you know, ashes on his forehead and, you know, so he goes, you don't celebrate Ash Wednesday? And I'm like, why would I? You know, what, what, what does it mean? Where did it come from? I said, is it, is it in the Bible? Well, it came about in the 6th century. I said, nah, that's not in the Bible. Okay? And he goes, well, it's about repentance. You believe in repentance? I'm like, I believe in repentance. But what does repentance have to do with putting ashes on your forehead? I said, where does this come from in the Scripture? And he goes, well, I just think it's a good thing for Christians to do. And I'm like, Why? Well, because I think we should repent. I said, you think you should just repent on Ash Wednesday? And he's like, well, no, you should repent all the time. I'm like, then what's the point of the ashes? You know, and we got in it because I said, you know, this is religion. This is man thinking I'll do some certain thing and God will accept me now. God will be happy with me because I put ashes on my forehead. I, I just, you know... And I like this guy. He's a believer. There's no doubt about that. You know, he loves the Lord. But I'm like, this is confusing to me. And he goes, well, for 40 days I do this and I do and I give up that. And I'm like, if it's wrong, give it up entirely. And if it's right, you don't need to give it up. He doesn't like talking with me. <laughs> because we're, you know, I mean, but we go out and have coffee together, you know, so I guess he doesn't mind it, but I think he likes the challenge, you know, he always knows that I'm, you know, and then he goes to this, well, well, what do you think about Easter? I said, I think it's a pagan holiday. <laughs> and he just cringed, you know, I said, the name Easter comes from a pagan god, Esther. I said, the Bible says in Deuteronomy, don't even mention the name of foreign gods. And Christians have a holiday named after a foreign god. And he just, you know, he was like, okay, I had enough. Let me go back to working out. You know, I had enough of this, okay? 
But see, so many people seek to walk after the flesh. You know, and there's some there's some good feeling I think you get from that. You know, you want to do something, you know, to please God. People you don't even know God. They think I'll I'll do this and God will be happy with me. You know, for the whole year I'll do whatever I want, and then Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras. Isn't this a great concept? We're going into we're going into Lent where we're going to sacrifice. So before we do, we're going to party down. Okay. <laughs> We're going to go to Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. We're going to live it up. We're going to have this big celebration. Then we'll cut it off and we'll sacrifice for 40 days and then go back. You know, it's just, again, it's the works of the flesh, you know, seeking to please God in terms. And again, there's just nothing biblical about this stuff. But man invents these things. Look at Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever man sows, that we also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to his spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Okay, so if you sow to the flesh, you got corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you got eternal life. If we take flesh here to refer to sinful life, then sowing to the spirit would mean living a holy life. That would mean everlasting life is a product of doing right. That'd be salvation by works. We know that's not correct. Sowing to the flesh is seeking to live under that old covenant of I'm doing things to please God, to make myself right with God. And sowing to the Spirit is living under the new covenant. It's trusting in Yeshua as Messiah. That's what he's calling for. And listen, it's all, God has always wanted faith in people. He always wanted people to trust Him. Not their works in the law. The law was given to show you how much you need Christ. How much you need God? It just it just brought sin. It inflamed it. All right, so this phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, is not a qualifying phrase. And that's how most people take it, okay? All right, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ as long as they walk according, don't walk according to the flesh, walk according to the Spirit. No, that's not a qualifying. It's a descriptive phrase. It's read like this. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Yeshua and those who are in Christ Yeshua are the ones who don't walk by the flesh, they walk by the Spirit. They're the ones who are trusting Christ. A Christian is one who doesn't walk after the flesh, but the Spirit. Let me show you Paul's definition of a Christian in Philippians. Philippians 3.3. 3. This is a great definition of a Christian. We are the true circumcision. What does he mean by that, true circumcision? Who was the circumcision? Israel. This... The circumcision is the technical description of Israel. And he's saying here, we're the true Israel. All right, who? Who's the true Israel? We who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Yeshua and we don't put any confidence in the flesh. We're not trusting our flesh at all. See, the circumcision, the Israel put confidence in the flesh because they felt as long as I had circumcision, I'm okay. And their rabbis even taught anyone who was circumcised could not go to Gehenna. They taught there was an angel at the door of Gehenna. And if you were so bad that God had to send you there, the angel removed your circumcision before you went. That's what they felt about circumcision. Powerful, powerful thing. So to walk according to the flesh is to seek to live under the law. And the Jews placed all their confidence in the possession of Torah. Just because they had it, they thought they were all right. They were physical descendants of Abraham. They had the mark of circumcision. They performed the ceremonies. They did the outward duties. But it was always of the flesh and it got them nowhere. Place one's confidence in anything outside of Christ is to have confidence in the flesh. To walk in the Spirit is to trust Christ in His finished work on Calvary. So, the verse is very comforting because what it says is there's no condemnation. There's no katakrama, no spiritual death, no eternal damnation to those who are in Christ. And those who are in Christ are the ones who walk according to the Spirit. And he goes on to Romans to, to give us a reason why there's no condemnation. He says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Yeshua set you free from the law of the sin and the law of the death. Now, John Piper here writes this, uh, commenting on these verses. Verse 1 is a declaration of no condemnation. Verse 2 is a description of practical transformation. I disagree there. By practical transformation, he means sanctification. All right? 
This is what this, this is not what this verse is talking about. This verse, verse two is not talking about living the holy life. Paul says, for the law of the spirit. For is the Greek word gar. He's giving a reason why there's no condemnation. Alright? The reason is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Yeshua set me free. This is Torah of the spirit. Torah is the law. This introduces us to a new facet of Torah. This is New Covenant Torah, the Law of the Spirit. N.T. Wright writes this, Speaking of Torah, after all, was a thoroughly Jewish way of speaking of God's saving action. Though Paul has spoken with eloquent passion of the way in which Torah locks the door on those who are imprisoned within Adamic humanity, he has never forgotten the promise of life. He can therefore speak with deliberate but comprehensible paradox of the law itself as the agent of that which God has accomplished in the Messiah and by the Spirit. Paul is saying the same thing here as he said in Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Again, this is union, and this is what we have to understand. What, is the, what does the law say to us? What does the law hold against us? Nothing. Why? The law has nothing to say to dead people. We died through the law to the in the body of Christ. When Christ died, we died. So we're dead. The law can't condemn us. It can't hold anything against us because we died. All right? Nothing to say to dead people. So that purpose, you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. See, we died with Christ. We're raised with Christ in order that you might bear fruit to God. Paul says, the Torah of the Spirit has set you free. He's talking here about setting slaves free. This is Exodus language. Those in Christ are brought out of Egypt, the Egypt of sin and death, and made citizens in the kingdom of God. Paul puts this in the past tense. He uses an aorist verb here, set you free. Which declares something that's already happened in the Spirit's application of our union with Christ. They were not yet set free from the body of death, but they were set free from the law of sin and death. Now, there's a textual variant here. Some manuscripts have me and some have you. Has set me free or has set you free. You seems to be the better supported idea here. Paul's addressing each reader as individual with the glorious message of freedom. You've been set free. The law of the Spirit is the same idea as for he who has died is freed from sin. You're free. It's the law that brought about sin. You're free from the law. Listen, if you don't have law, do you have sin? If you can do whatever you want, how do you sin? You only sin if someone says, don't do this, and you do it. That's sin. So you do away, you know, you die, you're free. You you die to the law. You're free from sin. Through the death of Christ, they became dead to the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was the old covenant law. You know, I, don't, I think a lot of people don't grab this. You really have to understand what Paul said in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 3. This is a very important text. Look what Paul has to say about law here. Who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. Paul's saying, we're, me and my apostles, we're servants of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but the spirit. So he's making a comparison. Letter, spirit. New covenant, old covenant. The letter kills. The spirit gives life. Now, the letters, the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant kills. What happened when the Old Covenant was given? 3,000 people died. What happened when the New Covenant was given? 3,000 people came to life, right? Old Covenant kills, New Covenant brings life. But if the ministry of death, that's the Old Covenant. He calls it a ministry of death. In letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation, that's the law, the law condemns, has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. The old covenant was a letter that killed, but the Spirit gives life. The Old Covenant was a ministry of condemnation. The New Covenant is a ministry of righteousness. 
We shouldn't be walking around condemned all the time. We are righteous in Christ. Those who have trusted Christ are free from the law of sin and death. They are no longer in the body of Adam, but are in the body of Christ. We are the eschatological bride, these first century saints, under the law. They had a new husband now. 8.3 says, for what the law could not do. Well, was something wrong with the law? No, he says, weak as it was through the flesh. God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned the sin in the flesh. What the law could not do. The meaning of the Greek term could not do here, that's a dunatos, and it means it's impossible. It's the word able with the alpha prefix meaning not able. It's impossible. The law couldn't do it. What was impossible was for the law to give life. It offered it, but it couldn't deliver You know, do this and live, the law commands. But gives us neither feet or hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. So the law commands, but it can't perform. Because it didn't do anything, it didn't provide the life. It was impossible for the law to give life. It offered it, but it couldn't provide it. It wasn't the law's fault, the problem was the flesh. Now this is nothing new in Romans. The law cannot save. The law was helpless to change the situation in the same way the law is helpless to change a marriage if it goes wrong. You know, there's certain things that, you know, you say, well, the, the marriage law says this, and well, I don't, can't help it. It doesn't, the law, it doesn't help me. The law was never intended to change the hearts of the people. It was there to protect or guard relationships that it recognized. Those who were by faith in the Old Covenant believed in Yahweh had regulations to guide their life, just like we do today. But it, those regulations didn't provide life. He says, weak as it was through the flesh. Now, the NIV translates flesh here as sinful nature. That's a bad translation. I think most scholars acknowledge that, that for Paul, Sarks describes man in Adam, man in the kingdom of darkness. And many commentators prefer an understanding here of personal guilt. Most Western commentators read Paul's letters and basically the New Testament in general from an Augustinian perspective. Now, Augustine's understanding of the biblical teaching on sin was tainted by his background in the Greek philosophical schools, which he explored before his conversion. The consequence of the mindset was that Paul's corporate view of sin was minimized and the power of his argument was lost. And we have to guard against this individualization of the argument to control the passage. In the context of Romans 8.3, Paul's not writing about man's sinful nature. He's writing about man's fallen condition in Adam. His position. What the law couldn't do, God did. Salvation is the work of God. He's got to do it. We've we've seen that in our study of John, right? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Greek for likeness here is homoioma. Homoioma means similar but different. How was he different than us? He was sinless. Okay? That's how he was different than us. He was similar to us. He was human, but he was different because he was a sinless human. It wasn't, his experience wasn't identical to man's because he didn't share man's guilt. He never sinned. For this reason, Paul qualifies his description of Christ by saying he came in the likeness of sinful man. Now, Paul doesn't mean that Yeshua was not fully human. Alright, there's people that jump on this verse and they say, well, he only appeared to be human. That's the error of the docetics. Alright? If he wasn't human, he wouldn't qualify to be our representative. More than any angel could qualify. He had to be a man. Alright? To be our representative before God. Now, the docetics used to say, essentially, that he was a divine being who looked like he had human nature. But he really didn't have a human nature. But the Bible teaches Yeshua is 100% man, 100% God, and that he was sinless humanity. All right? We see that 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was an unblemished, spotless lamb. He was sinless. 1 Peter 2.22 says, Who committed no sin? Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yeshua's humanity was both real 
and sinless simultaneously. He was the, that's why he died for us. See, if he had sin, he had to die for himself. Couldn't die for us, but because he was sinless, he could die for us. And he goes on to say he was an offering for sin. Now, for sin here is the Greek peri hamartias, which is the regular phrase used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew terms for a specific sacrifice known as a sin offering. Christ's death is a sin offering. He was the paschal offering that brought deliverance. Now remember, we said this already, but God is holy. He's so holy and He's so righteous, He cannot put sin aside. He cannot overlook sin. He cannot brush it aside. He has to punish it. Alright? And so He did punish it in Christ so we wouldn't have to be punished. Instead of forgiving our sins without a penalty, He makes an anointed substitute pay for us. Condemn sin in the flesh. Condemn this katakrino here. It means to judge against. Sentence was passed and executed on sin in Christ's flesh. He condemned sin. He judged it with finality. Now the aorist tense here emphasizes that he has already with finality condemned sin. There's no clearer statement found anywhere in Paul or anywhere else of the early Christian belief that what happened on the cross was the judicial punishment for sin. He punished sin. That's how come we can be forgiven. In the flesh is in Adam. So that, he says, the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that. This is a hina purpose clause, and it expresses the divine purpose, which is the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Oh, people, you got to grasp that this is a very, very significant phrase. The righteous requirements of Torah, what the law demanded, are fulfilled in us. Paul's repeating what he said in Romans 6-7. Those who have died with Christ are free from sin. There's no charge that can be made against this new relationship. It's not an adulterous one. As the law's requirements have been met in the representative. Covenant, the covenant annulling death of Christ. He put to death sin. The argument continues to be a corporate one describing the conditions of the two communities. Alright? We have to get this phrase. The things the law required. Take all 613 of them. Okay? Anything the law required is fulfilled in us. How? Through Christ. Did Christ fulfill the law completely? Did He keep the law? Yeah. People come up to you and say, well, you can't go to heaven unless you keep the law. And I said, I kept it perfectly. What? I've kept the law perfectly. I have not broken. How can you say that? Because I'm in Christ. And the requirements of the law have been, past tense, fulfilled in me. Because I accepted Christ. And so I completely have fulfilled the law. In a perfect sense. I'm righteous. I'm as righteous as Christ. That usually bothers people. But if it bothers people, I know they don't understand the Scripture. I'm as righteous as Jesus. If you, if you don't have that righteousness, guess what? You don't get in heaven. There's no lesser righteousness that's accepted. Now, but what's sad is many people take this verse and they try to make it something you should do instead of something that's already been done for you. And that really gets bad. Because now it's not comforting anymore. Now it's like, okay, but you gotta, you know, you gotta meet all the requirements of the law here now in order to, in order to not have condemnation. John Stott writes this. Verse 4 is of great importance for understanding of Christian holiness. First, holiness is the ultimate purpose of the incarnation and atonement. Now, if he's talking positional holiness here, I would agree, but he's talking practically here. The end God had in view when sending His Son was not our justification only through freedom from the condemnation of the law, but also our holiness through obedience to the commandments of the law. Secondly, Holiness consists in fulfilling the just requirements of the law. He's talking position, a practical holiness here. You've got to fill these requirements. The moral law has not been abolished for us. It has to be fulfilled in us. Although law obedience is not the ground of our justification, 
It is the sense that we are not under the law, but under grace. It is the fruit of it and the very meaning of sanctification. Holiness is Christ's likeness and Christ's likeness is fulfilling the righteousness of the law. Thirdly, holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 7 insists that we cannot keep the law because of our indwelling flesh. Romans 8.4 insists that we can and must because of the indwelling spirit. So he says we can't keep the law, but Romans 4 says we have to keep the law. So he sees verse 4 as something that we are to do. He sees it as God put his son to death as a sin offering so we would live a holy life. But Paul uses the passive voice here to emphasize that Yeshua fulfilled the righteous requirements so that nothing of God's justice, no more legal demand remains for us. Nothing is left for us to do to meet the judicial satisfaction before God. Now, along the same line as thought, Tom Constable writes this, God fulfills the law's requirements in us by His Spirit who indwells us and empowers us. However, this is not automatic because He indwells us. He fulfills them if and as we walk by the Spirit rather than walking according to the flesh. Walking by the Spirit means walking in submission to the dependence on the Spirit. Walking according to the flesh means behaving as the flesh dictates and allowing our sinful nature to govern our lives. So he also wants to make this about our obedience. We have already seen that not to walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit has nothing to do with how we live. It's about being under old covenant, which is death, being under new covenant, which is life. It's about trusting Christ or trusting your own works. This verse doesn't say we might fulfill the law. It says the law might be fulfilled in us. We're passive. God's the actor. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us by God. What is it the law requires? Righteousness. Absolute righteousness. Absolute sinlessness. All right? The soul that sins, it shall die. How many sins do you have to have to die? Just one. Just one. Okay? We've done that, right? The law requires righteousness. Covenant faithfulness. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For He made Him, referring to Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, Christ took our sin and gave us His righteousness. That's a great trade, huh? He took our sin and He bore it on the cross. He paid our sin debt. And He gives us His righteousness. That's why we have the righteousness of Christ. It's the only righteousness you can have to get into heaven. We'll never be separated from God because we have the righteousness of Christ. We are righteous as Christ. We stand complete in Him. Walking after the flesh was not just a problem faced in the first century, people. Many people today are walking after the flesh. By that, I mean they're trying to gain favor with God by the things they do. They're trying to please Him by the things they do. And I'm talking about unsaved people here trying to gain access into heaven. By works. As Christians, we should be pleasing God by the things we do. But we're not doing that to earn favor. We're doing it out of gratitude. For example, of people who are trying to earn favor with God, Catholic theology states, by my deeds, I can not only earn merit for myself, but if I earn more merit than I need to get into heaven, my extra merit goes into the treasury of merit to be applied to someone else to get them out of purgatory. So if you're an overachiever, you can pull other people along with you, okay? I mean, to earn myself. Now, the Catholic Church teaches this idea of treasure of merit, and they believe that Christ, what He did, went into the treasury of merit for us. But it's not enough to get us into heaven. So you have to add to what Christ did, which to me is just a slap in the face saying, God, everything He did is just not enough. That's walking after the flesh. And to walk out of the flesh to be condemned. If you're trusting something you do to get you to heaven, you'll never get there. And that's why the simplest thing, you know, when you're talking to someone, sharing the God, just ask them. If you were to stand before God right now and He asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you tell them? Well, I went to church. I tithed. I did this. I, you know, you start giving you, people start giving you the list right away, you know, eh, guess what? You don't understand the gospel. That's not what the gospel's about. But if they say, 
There's nothing I've done or could do. I'm getting to heaven because I'm trusting the very righteousness of Christ who died for my sin debt. To walk after the Spirit is to trust Christ and Christ alone. That's that's important because a lot of people trust Christ. But they also believe in Buddha, Muhammad, the works I do. You know, Christ is just one of the many that they have. And there's Christ and Christ alone. He's the only one that gets us. It's not Him and you working together. To trust Christ is to receive His righteousness and never face punishment. Believer, we often fail to live the way God calls us to. We don't love one another like we should. So we often don't live a life that imitates Christ. Often we're selfish. Often we're self-centered. There are many times when because of our sinfulness, we feel far away from God. But believer, hang on to the truth of Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation. None. To those who are in Christ. You're righteous. You stand before God righteous. God made us that way. He's made us accepted, Ephesians 1.6 says, in the beloved. You understand what that means? You're accepted because you're in Christ. You think He accepts Christ? You have as much chance of losing your salvation as Christ has getting kicked out of the Trinity. What do you think the chances of that are? Because you're in Him. That's your position. He made us righteous. We'll never suffer His wrath. We'll never face His punishment because Christ already bore it for us. Thank God our eternal destiny is not determined by our works. It's by our trust in Christ's work. And we can joyfully and confidently sing the words written by Edward Mote, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And by His name, He means not just the name Jesus. He means His character, who He is. That's what the name meant to a Hebrew. It represented all that He was. We lean on who Christ is. The promise of forgiveness is through trusting Him. And that's what God wants from His people. Trust me. He wants unbelievers to trust Him. Once we become a believer, He wants us to trust Him on a day-to-day basis. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I pray You'd help us to understand our identity. I pray You'd help us to understand our position, who we are in Christ. The security that we have. And I pray that understanding that security would drive us to a life of holiness. Out of gratitude, Lord, for what You have done for us. May we be so excited, so grateful for who You are, that our desire is to please You with every breath we take. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace. Amen.